In last week's session, we saw that it is in the will of God for us to love our country. Tobit tells his son, love your countrymen and do not let your heart fill with pride against your brothers. So God wants boundaries for each different country. What is significant, as we mentioned earlier, the Antichrist will attempt to achieve the opposite to eliminate the boundary lines of the nations to become the global leader. The groundwork is being paved by the global economy and also by United Europe, where passports and visas will be unnecessary for Europeans who want to travel from country to country within Europe. People in general welcome these movements, thinking that in the absence of boundaries, all nations will become more friendly to each other. There will be no need, no need for unrest and no need for walls. How quick do we forget that some of the bloodiest wars in history were civil wars? So each country has its boundaries, its people, its culture. The love of a country is a very powerful force, a force of human existence. The love of a country is the subject of much poetry, annual celebrations, national festivities, and much fanfare. Every country has its Independence Day, its flag, its national anthem and yes, its army to defend its boundaries. The love of a country becomes even more powerful in the area of immigration when citizens of a country are forced to expatriate, to be uprooted from their country either voluntarily or involuntarily. The sun shines the same everywhere we go. The moon is the same. The earth is the same, but the feelings of nostalgia never goes away. They follow most immigrants to their grave. The burning love for their birthplace, that small corner of the earth where they first learn how to walk, talk, and have their first experience in life. These feelings of deep love towards one's country are deeply planted in the heart of every person by the Creator Himself, God Himself. The great punishment for Adam was the expulsion from his country, which was paradise. God placed him in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Enjoyment, of pure joy. During the matin service of Cheese Fair Sunday, we commemorate the expulsion of Adam from paradise. And our hymnographers quote, And Adam wept across from the Garden of Eden. He was beating his face with his hands when he saw the angel closing the doors of paradise he sighed deeply and said, Suffer with me, grieve with me, paradise, because I'm the owner of paradise, but I went bankrupt. I became poor, and I am now expelled from the garden, the garden of enjoyment. Please, paradise, use the sound of your leaves, of your many trees, to beg and plead with our Creator not to leave me totally abandoned, not to desert me outside. Here we have the nostalgia of paradise, the nostalgia of the country, this deep nostalgia for paradise is the reflection of the kingdom of God and the nostalgia for a country is the reflection of the nostalgia of paradise. So our country is the very special place of our birth. 
where we first took our first steps, where we first met our neighbors and friends, those that we hold on to the same customs and traditions. They are our countrymen or patriotes. Patrida is the Greek word for country, literally meaning fatherland. Patrida is the root for the words patriot, patriotic, and so on. The symbol that captures this deep sense of a country for all human beings is the flag. The raising of the flag and the emotions that go along with it, the honor, respect, and pride of a person towards the flag symbolizes the love towards our country. Tobit and his family were uprooted from their country, the North Kingdom of Israel, and he was dragged to captivity in Nineveh, the great city of the Assyrians. God warned the Israelites repeatedly in the form of prophecies that if they did not obey his commands, his commandments, he would allow their expatriation, meaning the loss of their country. St. Matthew refers to this expatriation, the captivity in Babylon, in his genealogy. So God punished the disobedience of the Israelites by uprooting them from their country. So is it God's punishment when God uproots you from a land, the land of your birth? Is this a form of punishment? Yes, apparently so. A very significant type of punishment for a nation. And the Jews in captivity used to express their feelings by Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remember Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget me. Let it be paralyzed. Let my tongue cling to the root of my mouth if I do not exalt you, Jerusalem. This is a very beautiful psalm full of emotion and nostalgia for the country of their birth. The Jews loved Jerusalem. Esther, the beautiful wife of the king of the Babylonians. He had many wives, not necessarily queens. He had royal wives. He chose some wives even from the captives. And Esther was exceptionally beautiful. She risked her life to save her people. My king, how can I be happy when my people are in great danger from your own laws? And she helped to save her people. Is it a matter of coincidence when St. Mark records about the Lord? He says, he went away from there and came to his country, Nazareth. Matthew will also tell us that the Lord wept for Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He wept while prophesying her destruction. How would I like to gather your children like a hen? St. Paul also refers to his country with pride when he ran into some trouble with a centurion Lysias. I am a Jew. But I am, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of Cilicia, a citizen of Tarsus, which is not an insignificant city, by the way. So Tarsus is not some small village. I was born in a very important city. He brags about his birthplace. This is not by accident. St. Paul loved to promote his country, his birthplace. St. Paul, as we mentioned earlier, loved his countrymen so much that he was willing to forego his salvation if it were possible to save his relatives in the flesh, the Israelites. He would choose hell for himself, condemnation, 
if this would somehow save his brothers, his fellow Israelites. There is no higher love than this, our Lord said, for someone to lay his life down for his brother. St. Paul would not only give his life, but he would also give his eternal soul for the good of his countrymen. St. Gregory the theologian states in one of his letters, to honor our mother is a sacred duty. We all have different mothers. Each one has his own mother, but the common mother for everyone is our country. St. John the Chrysostom would also say in some of his sermons, nothing is sweeter than one's country. And as we mentioned earlier, these feelings are very much accentuated for those that immigrated, those who went far away, and after 5, 10, 20, 40, 50 years, they now return to either visit or live the rest of their years in their country, the country of their birth. The excitement, the anticipation, and the overall emotions are overwhelming. At last, they step on the ground of their country, of their city, or their village. So the concept or the value of the country is great. But as a value, it is certainly important, but lower and less important than the faith in Jesus Christ. Our different values in life can be classified from the most important to those that are less important. At times, the country may sentence someone to death because of his or her faith in Christ. St. Paul was sentenced by his own countrymen to death. The Jews wanted to kill him on many occasions. And finally, he was beheaded by the, his other country, the Roman Empire. If my country sentences me to death, I will not insult or denounce my country. No, I will humbly accept the country's decision, but I will not betray, I will not betray Christ. The concept of a country is a temporary form of this present world. Our permanent country will be the kingdom of God. St. Paul says, we're all visitors and refugees. We do not have a permanent city. But we are seeking the future city. They want to come. All our saints looked at themselves as immigrants, as visitors on this earth, awaiting to be joined again with their real country, paradise. So this is why we cannot betray the heavenly kingdom for the earthly one. The 40 martyrs of Sebastia loved their country. They were great and devoted soldiers. They defended their country in many battles. They risked their lives daily, but they refused to give their soul to the earthly country. They chose the king of the heavens over the earthly king. Yes, the Christian defends his country. In times of war, the Christian is ready to enlist first to serve his country. He will defend his family, his church, the faith of his fathers, while keeping his focus on the permanent country, the kingdom of God. So Tobit tells his son Tobias, and now my son, love your countrymen and your country. Tobit showed his love to his countrymen in Nineveh, especially on the day of Pentecost, when he said, my son, we are richly blessed with all this food, Go out and find one of our country people. Bring them here to join us. And his son came back quite shaken and said, Dad, I found some of our people dead and thrown outside of the city. Tobit once again risked his life to go bury his countrymen. Tobit's love for his country was accentuated because they were times, those were times of captivity. And the love and the nostalgia for a country sets on fire the heart of the person that is kept in captivity against his or his, her own will. Under these circumstances, a person can actually despise and hate this new country. 
But how about us who came to America by our own will? We left from Russia, Greece, Syria, Lebanon, Italy, and we came to this country. We know at least from our Greek experience that our first immigrants, at least most of them, lived with the dream of going back. They would work 10, 15, 20 years, improve their financial position, return to their native land, to their country, to finally retire and rest in peace there. However, this dream became elusive for most of them because their American-born sons and daughters desired to fulfill their dream in their country, the United States of America, or Canada, or Australia. It is possible here for parents to assume some unfair positions which can prove to be unhealthy for the children. They can begin to criticize many things about this country while glorifying everything about the old country. Everything in this country is wrong while everything on the other country is perfect. This is very unfair to say the least, to criticize the country that provides you with your everyday livelihood. As immigrant parents, we can love both countries. We will not love our birthplace any less if we also love our adopted country. People can have more than one child, they can have their children, and they can also adopt several other children that are perfectly capable of loving all of them. But our children, they will love their new country. They'll respect their new country, the country of their birth. But it is also up to us to teach them and never let them forget about the country of their parents, to tell them stories and try to educate them about their roots and their culture. And yes, but all possible to teach them the language, whether Greek or Arabic or Slavonic or Romanian, this will only certainly, this will certainly only enrich them. In the absence of these things, the children will feel very little connection with their ethnicity, and if the family ignores their spiritual duties, then the young people will become easy victims of the American melting pot to the great detriment of their soul. And something else, if we truly love America and we want to show our appreciation for the material opportunities that it may have presented us with, the best way is to bring orthodoxy to America, to pay back America with true spirituality. America today is starving spiritually. Thousands of denominations, millions of Western churches cannot fill the spiritual void that plagues this land. Sermons in churches, daily sermons on radios, huge cable TV networks constantly preaching for dozens of years, day in and day out, to no avail. America is slipping into the depth of darkness, paganism, idolatry, and atheism. What better proof do we need to finally and once and for all understand that a heretical, falsified, worldly gospel does not sanctify? Granted, it does help people to improve themselves, to better themselves, to be moral, to be sharing and giving. There's no doubt that anyone who picks up the Bible, the Holy Bible can be read by anyone. Anyone who studies it will benefit, will be uplifted, Christian or not churched or unchurched, but to bring the grace of God in the depths of our soul, to make our soul and body the temple of the Holy Spirit, to be vessels of grace, we need the sanctification that takes place with the true gospel, and the true gospel can only be assured in the Orthodox Church, and more specifically, in the Orthodox Church that abides and continues in the teachings of the Church Fathers and the seven ecumenical consuls. In our desperation to attract converts, 
we often modernize our sacraments, our methodology. We change tradition for convenience sakes. But this will reduce the very character of the church to that of another denomination, to the glory of Lucifer. It is not surprising that some sincere converts visiting our modernizing congregations often comment that, no, we want genuine orthodoxy, the real thing, and not a mixture of neo-American orthodoxy, a, a mixture of orthodoxy and Protestantism. America needs the truth if America is to be free again spiritually. Tobit used to teach his son from a very early age, my son, don't forget that we are sons of prophets. We must do the same thing with our children. My daughter, your example is the Panagia. We must never stop teaching our Russian, Greek, Syrian, Albanian, Romanian, Serbian, Bulgarian, and American Orthodox children that we are sons and daughters of martyrs and saints. Our forefathers died for their faith. They preserved the torch of faith all through the centuries. Are we going to be the generation to erase all this? Again, God laws are not against ethnicity. On the contrary, the idea of a cultural melting pot, the idea of one world community, one world government is highly anti-Christian based on the word of God through the spiritual will of Tobit, it is not improper but highly advisable for the parents of Greek, Russian, Serbian, Albanian, Syrian children to teach them and condition them from a very early age that they should look to marry within their own nationality. The kids will come home from school seven, eight, nine, ten years old and they will be joking or just talking about their friends. They might say, I may marry Joyce, our neighbor, or Tara, or Pam, or Johnny. Let's not be afraid to say, yes, my child, these kids are very nice people, I'm sure, but they are not orthodox. If we do this from the age of 8, 9, 10, a lot will be accomplished. We will have a great possibility in avoiding a number of dysfunctional mixed marriages. In the absence of this conditioning, our young people will have no reason to become selective with their emotions and feelings. And under these conditions, love is blind. True love is never blind. A young person who is daily trained in the fear of the Lord will learn to be selective with their relationships and emotional involvements. Their spiritual training will empower them to control their feelings with non-Christians and if they are taught well enough with an unorthodox. Again, a lot can be accomplished in the orthodox Christian home, but the parents must be prepared spiritually for these challenges. Unfortunately, many young people lack spiritual training and their parents run to the church when their son or daughter is ready to be engaged and be married in the synagogue. The consequences are well known to all of us. Spiritual parents at this point threaten their children that they will not go along with this, they will not go to the wedding, and so on and so forth. The non-spiritual parents will most likely bow down to their children's wishes and hope for the best. When more than 50% of these marriages end up in a divorce, at least 50% of the children will abandon their Orthodox church and follow their non-Orthodox father or mother to join the family faith of their non-Orthodox parents. Again, the truth hurts but if we are sincere, we cannot hide our heads in the sand about these matters. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, even in spiritual matters. Unfortunately, these words will not be heard on your Sunday sermons. Our priests have their tongues tied by the 
of mixed marriages that take place in our church today. Our priests can hardly be blamed because most people today are looking for any type of excuse to criticize the priest or criticize the church. And most of the critics are usually the spoiled, battered children of orthodoxy, not the converts. Most converts are sincere. They want to try and they accomplish a lot, but they need a great deal of instruction and spiritual parenting, which is almost inexistent in our average Orthodox congregation in this country. Thank God for the small number of exceptions. Again, some words for those that are in mixed marriages, for whom we pray that they do not misinterpret our message. In my most recent trip to Greece, in the spring of 1995, I specifically questioned Father Athanasius on this subject, about the people that are now involved in a mixed marriage in the Orthodox Church. His words, Husbands, love your wives, and wives, love your husbands. This love will accomplish a lot of things. This love will make the convert much warmer towards the Orthodox faith and eager to learn. Many times we expect the convert to love and enjoy our ethnicity as much as we do. And this is not possible. With love and patience and patience and love, we will defeat the darts of the evil one. Above all, we must insist on the eternal truths of the Orthodox faith, and somehow the convert to Orthodoxy should come to look at their conversion as the greatest gift from God, even greater than the marriage itself. But for this to take place, we, the Orthodox, must begin to mature in our faith. Our maturity will track the grace of God and keep the light of the Spirit, and the light of God will permanently be in our lives. And with God with us, no one can be against us. By the grace of God, we have concluded the topics on mixed marriages, the love of a country, and some of the matters on ethnicity. While recording these topics, I received the newsletter of Father Dimitrios Carellas, and I became very excited about his insight on the question of preference, of language preference in a divine liturgy. And I quote Father Dimitrios. I cannot tell you how sad I become when I hear someone say something like, the liturgy is almost meaningless to me when it is not in English. I soon get bored and begin to daydream about what I'll be doing once the service is over. But statements like these are merely the symptoms of the real cause of our having lost the mystery. We priests have not emphasized the mystery of the liturgy to our faithful. Just over a thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir, although a pagan, sent envoys from Kiev to various countries of the world in search of the true religion. They journeyed first into Muslim lands and then to Germany and Rome, but could not find fulfillment to the heavenly desire for truth which God had placed in their hearts. Their final stop was Constantinople, where they attended a divine liturgy in the great church of Hagia Sophia. And here, their hearts burned within them as they were given the grace to experience the essence of the service whose form was in a foreign language. This is how they attempted to paint a verbal icon of what they were allowed to experience. We knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth, for surely, surely there is no such splendor or beauty anywhere upon earth. We cannot describe it to you. Only this we know, that God dwells there among men, and that their service surpasses the worship of all other places, for we cannot forget that beauty. 
And Father Demetrius continues, in the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America, most of the 450 plus parishes use more English than Greek in the form of their offering of the divine liturgy. A few use all English, a few use all Greek, but the same mystical presence can be found in all of them. If we attend a liturgy in any of these parishes, because our deepest inward desire is to enter his kingdom, to worship him together with the angels and saints, to receive his life-giving body and blood, then the mysterion of this divine service is accessible to us. Then we too, like the envoys of Prince Vladimir, will not know whether we are in heaven or on earth. If our main purpose of attending is to hear the beautiful Greek language, or to understand all of the words in my English language, then we risk losing total awareness of the mystery. In the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the divine liturgy is offered every day, not in Greek, Slavonic, Arabic, or English, but in a language of the spirit. And the words used in the mystical essence of the divine liturgy you and I will attend this Sunday are all taken from that language the one true native tongue of every Orthodox Christian since the day they were reborn of water and the Spirit in the womb of the church. We thank Father Demetrius for this great insight. So now, my son, love your brethren, and in your heart do not disdain your brethren and the sons and daughters of your people by refusing to take a wife for yourself from among them. For in pride there is ruin and great confusion, and in shiftlessness there is loss and great want, because shiftlessness is the mother of famine. And we now begin a new subject commenting on the fourth chapter of Tobit. We'll concentrate on the second half of this verse because in pride there's great loss and instability and in wastefulness there is reduction and great poverty because waste is the mother of hunger. This is a great subject and quite appropriate for our times. The subject of wastefulness or the tendency to spend freely and this need to spend freely and nonstop is based on egotism. This is the result of a boastful and egotistical lifestyle. This need to waste this constant spending goes hand in hand with a luxurious and boastful lifestyle. The script says that when we spend unnecessarily, we will face shortage. Or when we waste our money on unnecessary luxuries, on useless things, we will sooner or later become impoverished. So this tendency to spend freely to satisfy our desires, to show off, to look good, to make a good appearance, to be fashionable, all this results from our egotistical lifestyle which is a byproduct of pride. If a person would find themselves all alone on a deserted island most of these products that we use religiously every morning from the time we wake up until we step into the workplace, all these products would be totally unnecessary. So today we don't simply buy what we need, but we serve the desires of our egotistical self. We have become attached to a number of habits and products that never even existed a hundred years ago. We need to address this issue of waste because this issue of waste can have consequences in our individual home 
but it can also spread and expand on a national and international level. In its depth, waste shows indifference and insensibility towards God's blessings. God gives us all his goods and we become bad stewards of these goods. Usually the phenomenon of waste appears in the days of a stable economy during the good days when everything is plentiful, easily accessible. We must say that most of this century, at least the last 50 years, we have been able to have everything at our fingertips. Our times have been classified as times of consumerism. We are labeled consumers. We consume and our thirst for consumption has been well served by television, TV shopping clubs, shopping malls and factory outlets. We buy and consume on a daily basis. This is why the men of our times is no longer classified as the men of scholasticism or the men of nobility or the men of fine arts or the men of science. All these titles belong to the men of the past. Today, we are existing in the times of consumerism. In the past, the brightest people would dedicate themselves to science, medicine, politics, or technology. Today, these masterminds are behind automobile companies, computer selling corporations, Wall Street, banking corporations, credit companies, and so on. Born to consume. What a pity. Born to consume. The whole idea expresses shallowness, spiritual poverty. Animals consume. Fire consumes. It cheapens the ideal and the philosophy of humanity. The history of America is only 220 years old as we know it. And the truth is, at least modern America, and the truth is that very few people remember the Great Depression. Most of the people have died only those that are probably 80 and 90 years old may remember those years. But the fact is that the average American citizen today has no idea of the meaning of hunger or the meaning of starvation. Middle class America assumes that our supermarkets will be constantly begging us to go in and shop. We assume that our shelves will never run empty, but we can learn a great deal from the history of other nations. We can learn a great deal from the history of great empires that are no longer because they challenge the will of God. History will tell us about this vicious economic cycle. Time of plenty time of thoughtless waste, and time of hunger. In Tobit, the Word of God mentions this. You have wealth, you have it all. You become arrogant, you waste, spent thoughtlessly, and hunger is only around the corner. So Tobit is very accurate when he says that the mother of hunger is wastefulness. But let's look at this blessing of Evimeria or the good days, the days of wealth. First of all, to have plenty of material goods is a blessing from God. No one can deny this, especially since our church prays for this. We pray that the Lord gives us good weather, good weather conditions, the proper rain, sun, the right conditions so we can have fruitfulness. We pray for this in the divine liturgy. We also pray that God protects us from hunger, disease, earthquakes, floods, fire, sword, enemy attacks, civil wars, 
So we can ask God to protect us from hunger and all these things. So we pray to God not to allow these evils on us, and we clearly see that God punishes his people with hunger, amongst other things. So to have a vimeria or strong economy is a blessing from God. But the blessing of God can become a, cur a curse in the hands of men. God is not at fault here. If we have drunks today, we cannot blame God because he gave us wine. If we have more thin addicts or heroin addicts, we cannot blame God because he gave us these plans. God says through his prophets, Jeremiah and other prophets, you will eat your bread with rations. I don't know if there were any bread lines or soup lines during the Great Depression. Most likely they were. But these bread lines or soup lines are common all over the world today. In Russia, a few years ago, people had to wait for hours to get bread, which should last for a day or two. In Greece, in the 40s, in Athens especially, a family was allowed a loaf of bread, if you could call it that, and that was their supply for several weeks. Many people died. In the U.S., we did not have this experience as of yet. A couple decades ago, we had an energy crisis, and gasoline was being rationed. You could only buy so many gallons and twice or three times a week. Not at any time we felt like doing so. So God punishes when we waste. Let's never blame God, however. We can only blame ourselves because this happens when we abuse God's benevolence. We will refer to a good picture in the seventh chapter of Daniel to better understand this meaning of waste. He is referring to the four beasts that were coming out of the great sea, the Mediterranean. And these were images of the things to come. He observed that the fourth beast was a vicious beast, which is interpreted as the Roman Empire by the interpreters. But what's interesting is the description of this beast. This beast devoured and broke in pieces and stumped on the residue with its feet. And whatever it couldn't eat, it would crush with its feet. This is a terrible image. You may say, well, how does this apply to our times today? Well, today we have games with food. You probably remember the movie The Animal House with food being used for laughter, for fun, to party, not to eat, but to throw against each other, to have a food fight. I don't know if any of these game shows on this kid's channel called Nickelodeon, if any of these game shows use real food or not, but they do sicken me. And they would sicken anyone who is sensitive about the millions of children that are dying from hunger every day, and you are forcing kids to dive and jump and dance all over food, you are worse than the beast of Daniel. In the nightclubs of Greece, the wealthy would drink and eat and drink some more, and then they would break everything on the tables, bottles, plates, glasses, everything in pieces on the floor, and they would dance on top of the broken plates another beastly and pagan attitude. So when God sees that his blessings are being abused in the hands of foolish people, then he limits and controls 
the access of materials, material goods to the point of hunger. If I remember correctly, the period be before the Great Depression was called the Roaring Twenties. People were as happy as could be, plenty of money, clothes, and enjoyment, fun times. A few short years after that came the Great Depression. My friends, there are some great surprises in store for the atheistic government of nations that think that they can control the economy by controlling and fluctuating interest rates. They can control the stock market. They can control the Federal Reserve and the national gross product. They cannot control the weather. Yes, they can seed clouds, but they cannot create clouds. They cannot control the amount of rainfall which will stop falling for three and a half years during the years of the Antichrist. There will be no rain when the Antichrist reigns. No, we don't seem to understand that hunger will be the product of our thoughtless waste and abuse of God's blessings causing God's punishment to be heaped upon us. We pray for God's blessings so we can have more to spend. This is why St. James writes in his epistle, you ask and you do not receive because you do not ask for a good reason. You ask so you can spend more for your pleasures. He does not say on your needs, but on your desires and pleasures. So when we have excess of material goods, we slip from what's simply needful to what's pleasurable and wasteful. The man of today is not content to simply meet his basic needs, but he searches and seeks out an infinite number of pleasures. The shopping malls and the ever so numerous specialty stores are the creation of the men of pleasure and luxurious lifestyle, the men of the flesh. A hundred years ago, people did well with the country store, a few small stores in the center of town which addressed the people's immediate needs bread, dry goods, some soap, and a few necessities. Today, we need a dozen of different machines just in the kitchen. Dishwashers, microwave ovens, toasters, garbage disposals, electric knives, electric can openers, electric bread machines, bread makers, electric ice cream machines, electric coffee machines, coffee grinders, and the list goes on and on. This is why the Spirit of God comes to correct us in Romans 13, verse 12. And the provision of the flesh do not turn into desires or lusts. You are to take care of your needs and not to chase desire after desire. We all have to be very careful from this sort of backsliding from necessity to desire. This is something that concerns all of us because we are all children of consumerism, as we said. This type of thing can become a great temptation. We pray to God every day in the Lord's Prayer, do not lead us into temptation. Because once we cover our needs, our basic need then we seem to go after and try to seek all kinds of satisfaction and pleasures. And these temptations are caused by our own evil desires and not the noble temptation that someone can suffer for the sake of the faith. So when we waste our assets on different desires, poverty is around the corner. We hear the term today, house poor, meaning that these people 
spent everything they had to buy their dream house. All it takes now is a layoff for a few months, a bed back for a few months, and the dream house becomes a nightmare. And this is understandable when this happens to people who are not very close to God, people who say, well, you only live once, but to have this terrible spirit of egotistical waste associated with our Orthodox Christian sacraments, this has gone too far. People today will mortgage and remortgage their home, their business, to spend thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars on a wedding reception. It doesn't matter that the newlyweds come back broke, and it may take four or five years for them to get back on their feet. Yes, we'll pay very dearly for this type of waste someday, and even now. But let's look at uh, some things about this great country of ours in general. After World War II, industry went wild. Steel plants, U.S. steel, Bethlehem steel, coal mines, heavy industry, everything prospered. Most of these plants employed hundreds of thousands of people. And where did all this money go? How much of the money was reinvested in our steel plants to computerize, to upgrade, to make them competitive with equivalent foreign plants? You can answer this for yourself. If you drive or if you happen to live near Pittsburgh, PA, or near Bethlehem, PA, or some of the other steel ghost towns, our country today, we boast about the highest lifestyle in the world, and that's questionable, when even Canada has health care for all its citizens. And most of the European countries, along with the country of Greece. But let's talk about the financial condition of the U.S. The national debt of the United States is now one point three trillion actually four point seven trillion as of five eleven ninety five according to the morning call newspaper which means the country must pay what over a hundred billion a year in interest every year to world banks and who's going to pay for all this debt? Who's going to pay for all this created by the generation of consumers? And for how long can our government live on borrowed money? And what kind of example is this for the average citizen who has become a man of credit, spent today, paid tomorrow? Buy now, pay later. Again, it is hard to imagine that America could go hungry someday. But the Word of God never fails. It talks about wealth, foolish spending, and poverty. This is the chain of events. Yes, our business, our private sector may be doing quite well, but the government, our treasury, is poor. We are laden by an enormous amount of debt which cannot be pushed aside forever. And sooner or later, this debt will fall on the backs of the citizens. Moses paints a bleak picture about this type of thing in one of his prophecies about the nation of Israel in his third ode. And Jacob ate and became full. By Jacob, he means Israel. The Israelites ate and became full. And the beloved kicked. They ate rich foods. They became fat. They became large. And they deserted God who created them. And went away from God, the Savior. So Israel 
the nation of Israel has left God, went away from God, rebelled against God in the presence of material wealth. So what we see here is that excessive goods weaken the faith and loosen the morality of a nation. It destroys the faith in the providence of God because each man thinks that his belongings, his assets, are not a gift from God, but his assets are simply the product of his ability and ingenuity and the works of his hands. So little by little, man reaches a state of rebellion against God. When did Jacob kick? When he ate and became full. And he kicked God. The script does not simply say left God, went away from God, but he kicked. This shows animosity towards God. It shows an attempt to destroy the knowledge of God. It shows a rebellious attitude towards God. The atheists today, the ACLU, are very polemic against God. They succeeded to kick God out of the classroom, out of the textbooks, out of the public places. They don't seem to care too much about the God of the Muslims or the God of the Satanists and the hard rock musicians, but they go berserk when dealing with the God of the Christians. Supposedly, the very God that the forefathers of this nation had in mind to worship after their pilgrimage to the United States. Abraham, the father of Israel, was very wealthy, but he utilized God's blessings to glorify him. Job was also very wealthy, but he was a good steward. And all the men of God who were blessed with wealth never allowed this wealth to get in their way to distance them from God. Their wealth did not influence their heart. Their heart belonged to God. The epistle of Barnabas, not from the Holy Scripture, but from the tradition of the church, writes in the 10th chapter, when people spend, they forget God. When they have no material goods, when they are poor, then they remember God, and he uses an example, just like the piglet. When the piglet eats, it ignores its master. But when it is hungry, then it squeals. It squeals until it is fed. After that, it wants nothing to do with its master. This is how we become with God. When we are troubled, we are on our knees. When everything is well, then we pretend to forget about God. This became more evident in the case of the Gulf War several years ago. During the Gulf War, our Vesper services and supplication services and Bible classes doubled in size. According to St. Clement of Alexandria, wastefulness starts from the soul. This evil starts from the soul. Greed is a sin of the soul. The body does not sin, the soul sins. The body only needs but one set of clothes and some food for the stomach. The body does not care what kind of clothing we wear or what kind of house we live in. The body is very easy to please. The soul is insatiable with greed, pride, and all kinds of passions. And the soul enslaves the body with these passions. Even the passion of immorality begins in the soul, not the body. And it uses the body. So the root of greed begins in the soul. All the causes of the passions exist in the soul. 
the body is neutral. The body does not want to become drunk or overeat or smoke. Initially, the body tries to defend itself against these things by becoming dizzy or vomiting or sweating. But eventually, under the pressures of the soul, the body becomes enslaved and even addicted and eventually the body begins to sin as well because we sin with our soul and with our body. But initially, as we said, the sin begins in the soul.